This episode of Positive Feedback Loop is brought to you by... Uh... Wait, haven't we done this already? Positive Feedback Loop. And welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop Podcast, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. And this is your host, Ray, and with me, the lovely Stephanie and Luis. Hello, everyone. Hello. And today, we're going to be talking about something that we all actually, you know, have and share and have developed over our entire lives and will continue to develop, something called memory. We all have a memory, for the most part. Uh, Of course, there are certain... You know, diseases that might impact our memory in a negative way, but give or take, we all have some form of memory of past events. And although it's not a perfect system and our memories change in the way we process and the ability to retain memories changes over time, I, we found it to be a really important topic. So we want to kind of dive right into it and share with you guys what we think about memory. In general, when we think about memory, we think about events or occurrences that have happened in the past and then we use our brains to recall these events and certain things that might trigger them are like smell and sounds and you know all of this has to do with the past so Luis can you talk to us a little bit more about how the past is related to memory well I I would say that the past is almost exclusively related to memory but it is indeed uh, something that we've cared about for a very long time. Uh, you know, memory is knowledge, which we can pass on. And the idea of being remembered lets us feel that we will live on long after we've passed on. So it's been really important to humanity for you know most of its history, or rather, it is its history, right? That's why we created systems to keep track of stuff, whether that's writing, which has been around for about 5,000 years, uh, with, if you take into account tally marks, which people just use to just keep track of grain, sh- grain quantities and just basic tallying and keeping track of things, we've been doing that for 40,000 years. Uh, we, we could talk about just the fact that memorializing uh, someone's life or memorializing events or um, keeping track of uh, things that we imagine and the way that we perceive the world when we were younger or at some point in our lives, we've been doing all this in many different ways, whether that's paintings, which you can find early cave paintings from up to 70,000 70, years ago. A uh, re- very recent article, you can you can see it in sculptures, in ar- architecture, in pictures. We try to make sure that we keep memory alive whenever we can. At least that's been kind of one of the traditions of humanity. And in a strange coincidence, actually, uh, some of our oldest writing is better kept than much more recent stuff. So... We originally started one of the earliest forms of uh, mediums for writing was clay tablets, which could be hardened and would keep better uh, over time. This actually resulted in the funny coincidence that a lot of clay tablets survived because if the the places they were being kept on caught on fire, like say during a war or during an accident, they would only harden. They wouldn't burn like paper. Paper can't really boast about being fireproof or fire resistant anyways. Uh, but a big part of all this effort has been done to improve memory because memory is unreliable, and we've known this for a very, very long time. Uh, so I was looking a little bit into some of the ways that it is unreliable, and there's 
some really important there's some really important research that's going into this. It's really complex, and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm gonna try to summarize some of the stuff out there. So I looked at some of the research done by a psychology professor, or rather, some of the uh, writings done by a psychology professor from Harvard called Daniel Schachter, who wrote the Seven Sins of Memory, and these are these are the list of the ways that our memory tends to f- disappoint us. Let's say. So the sins are uh, transience, which is just, you know, losing access to memory over time. You forget things as time passes. This is pretty not common and happens with aging. Uh, there's absent-mindedness, which is lapses of attention. So forgetting to do things, forgetting where your keys are, where, where you put your eyeglasses. You know, we've all had friends or seen this happen before where someone forgets that their sunglasses are on top of their head. That's uh, just because you're not paying attention. You could have blocking, which is where you temporarily lose access to information. So, for example, the tip of the tongue idea or syndrome, which is a real thing and affects me way too commonly, as listeners probably are well aware of by now. Uh, There's suggestibility, which is when someone uh, introduces or when you introduce misinformation to your memory uh, because someone's leading you with questions or there's some deception in there. There's bias. And this is a really interesting one because... The way that the context in which you're remembering changes the memory itself. So, for example, if you have a negative, you're very having a really tough time with a relationship. You are your partner has been really disappointing to you. You're struggling with this relationship. You are much more likely to remember the entirety of the relationship negatively and kind of forget the positive times. And the same could be could happen in the opposite direction and can happen in many different ways. Internal biases and the ways that we experience things. And the way the the times and context in which we remember them is hugely important and can totally change the way that things are. It sounds like you're referring to the retrieval, not the storage of memories. Yes. So like you store all the memory, but the way you retrieve it, you might retrieve totally different memories of that relationship at the person's funeral versus when you're breaking up versus when they've just given you a gift. Well, that's exactly it, though. The, uh, The idea of... Memory as being this hard-coded thing that once you have it, it stays that way isn't really true, at least based on the research I've seen. It seems to be more that when we access the memory, when we remember it, we change it. The way we remember it, when you tell a story, the story changes in your mind, who you told it to, how you told it, the details you picked out. Those all affect the memory itself. And so the next time you retrieve it, the next time you tell the story... It'll be based on a slightly different story, on a slightly different memory. And so 50 years after the original telling of the story, it's likely to be a completely different thing, sometimes even completely false. Uh, that's, that's one of the, that's not just bias, but there's many different ways that you can forget details about your memory. And that's also one of the other things that can happen, which is a misattributing memory, not just from, uh, forgetting things about the memory itself or about uh, the event or whatever, but about the context around the memory. So, for example, uh, you could for- remember the wrong source. There's a really famous case of Ronald Reagan, who had a really vivid memory of a, of a World War II pilot who was awarded a posthumous Congressional Medal of Honor for heroically staying with a wounded crewman as his plane went, went down. But he didn't actually remember this from an event in his life. This is probably something he took from a movie from 1944 called the a wing and a prayer. So this is this came out of nowhere. Now, it could have been that he was making it up wholesale, but 
he swore that this was something that he was aware of, that it, that this had really happened. This was a memory where you remembered the source wrong. Now, again, this can happen to anyone, not just presidents. There's also false memories, which uh, you can get due to leading questions. There's inadvertent plagiarism is a thing that can happen. For example, where you think an idea of yours is novel, where in fact you actually saw it somewhere else and you're just taking it, but you forget that you're taking it. So there's a lot of ways that memory can really uh, be misattributed and really mess with you. And of course, this last uh, category of the last sin of memory, which was persistence. And that's that unwanted memories that people can't forget, such as those that you could get from PTSD. With all these different modes of failure in memory, how are we to, as humans, rely on anything people say? Listeners might not know this, or some of the long-term ones will, but we have these WhatsApp conversations. <laughs> we don't prepare heavily for episodes, but we do think a lot about them and discuss. And something Luis said in the chat earlier, uh, before we started this episode, kind of answers your question, Ray. So Luis, I'm going to quote you. <laughs> but you said, I'm going to kind of start mid-sentence, but who filmed this? Do they have an agenda? I don't trust the news, but blogs are shady. Therefore, no one is trustworthy which makes it hard to get people to accept a shared universe. I thought that was really telling that we, you know, all of these, all, like you said, there's, there are these sins of memory, but then there's the, the, even the source and the trust there. And so how can we accept a shared universe? That's well, I think those, so those sins that you refer to in that study um, or article, is about individual memory or a person's single memory, right? I think there's also the concept of a collective memory, like the internet as a whole mm -hmm. is a form of collective memory. And everything that's ever been published has... Well, I mean, the whole the whole of human history is collected memory, if you wanted to think about it that way. I mean, sure. that is, yeah. again, the records that we have passed down over time because we are a species that aggregates knowledge and improves based on that knowledge we've aggregated. So the more stuff we mm -hmm. have to go around, the more we can do with it. But At then there's more the trust involved. Because if you have a collective memory, sure. then you, ha you will, by definition, I guess, of d people being different, have uh, contradicting accounts Beliefs. that are recorded. Yeah, and the beliefs and about it. And that's it, isn't it? That's one of the reasons why we have, you know, an issue of trust. And that's there are so many different people with many different recollections, many different accounts, many some of which are legitimate bad actors, some of which are unintentionally acting in uh, in a way that's detrimental. But some of if they're being inadvertent, if it's because of bias, if it's because of um, any level of uh, inter interference in their life, any they've told it too many times, they and they've forgotten, or they've been led to believe a certain thing because mm. of uh, an authority has kind of led them in a certain direction. These are all things that can kind of interfere with the idea of us accepting a shared universe. But I don't think that that's necessarily a truly a problem. I think that for the most part, people accept a shared reality it's just it's become harder because there's so much stuff out there well so i think i can want to be right there are some cases that have come to the forefront recently and one is politically charged i'm going to try to say this 
in a, you know, non-political way. But the Kavanaugh hearings recently are a great example because people were not just asking who's telling the truth, which was, which was one of the valid questions people were asking, but another valid question was, does either party have memory issues? Um, on one side, so this is uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who was in hearings to potentially be called as a Supreme Court justice for the United States Supreme Court. He was charged with uh, something, and you can look it up. And, there were allegations of sexual misconduct. Yes. Um, and uh, he, yeah, and so he had these accounts that were brought up by the woman who had experiences. But it was so far in the past that people were starting to think, well, is he saying, no, this didn't happen? Is he telling the truth? Is he lying? Or did it happen and he don't, doesn't remember it because it was so long ago? Uh, or did he not remember it because he was under the influence of alcohol? So these are, and there's more than that, but basically memory was a huge factor in the hearing. And then, you, then people would bring up on the woman's side, uh, Dr. Ford, does, is she lying? Is she telling the truth? But also, is she remembering the right person? It was so long ago. Does she remember the account correctly? And so there are these really interesting questions and not that we won't discuss, you know, how we feel about this, but I think it's uh, very fair to say that memory and what, Luis, you're pointing out about the faults of memory have become a huge issue in that case, and that affects American politics to a high degree. This has been a really interesting case to watch. I mean, it's not just a he said, she said. It's a really politically charged he said, she said, where there's several layers to where people can fall along their lines, along their political lines, right? There are those people who want it to be, uh, who believe it to be a, a conspiracy on one side or the other, where one side's trying to, throwing out false allegations. And so it's, and it's just politically, completely politically charged and completely cynical uh, attempt at uh, moving things to win, uh, getting a win for your party. There's other, on the other side, there are those who only believe one party, uh, one individual versus the other. And then there are those who believe both individuals, but simply believe uh, or want to believe that the side that they don't agree with is misremembering. And even if they're well-intentioned, they're still flawed. So it's been a really, a really saddening, hurtful, exhausting few weeks of politics, but interesting nonetheless. But it's important to remember that just because people can misremember stuff doesn't mean that they have or they will. And it's important that we still trust people and take their word when we see no reason for them to uh, lie to us or expect otherwise. We should always still trust victims if we can, if there's even if it's difficult uh, because we want them to be wrong. And it's important that we also trust people who want to defend themselves. I think that over the last few decades actually we've begun to rely on a person's word a little bit less and over time I think that will continue and looking towards the future I think there'll be a lot of reliance on technology a lot of reliance on technology to tell or a lot of reliance on technology to provide an external memory so that we don't have to really depend on people to provide that memory of or recount what happened in the past. So if you think about what's happening now all over the world with um, just having a camera on everyone's phone, you know, the ability to 
document and create artifacts of time and create artifacts of memory with pictures and videos, not just on our phone, but even if you think about any public place right now is completely surveilled. So there's video basically any in any public place. So having that evidence can almost factually say this is what actually happened. So you don't have to rely on someone's memory anymore. So not only that, but we're also externalizing a lot of our experiences and memories to, um, you know, documentation. So we type out all our information. So instead of relying on a piece of paper that could be burned or, you know, a clay tablet that could be broken and destroyed, we are digitizing it. And this digitization is allowing you know, it'll basically enable us to recall that "quote unquote" memory, digitized memory, in any point in the t- in any point in time in the future. I, I know, as long as we have the ability to use the same kind of uh, technology interfaces, like a computer or some sort of like computing device, right? Well, I, don't, don't we lose some of that those records? So, for example. One of the more popular ways of keeping records was it has been tape because it's cheap and is plentiful, right? It's easy to produce and it can do a good enough job that it's that it's what's used in a lot of uh, data warehouses or at least has been in the past. So, what do you think could be the possibility of uh, information being lost simply because it's in the wrong medium? What if we switch out of tape and it, you know, how much stuff will be left behind? How many people still have VCR players? Yeah, that's a good point. And there'll definitely be periods of time where different technologies overlap each other. So tape is still used in a lot of warehouses, like uh, data warehouses, as you said. Um, but I think primarily most cloud computing companies, you know, they rely on different sources or different mediums of storage, uh, more more reliable, more flexible easier to manage. I don't think managing a tape is that easy. Um, I don't really know. I haven't done that in the past, or at least not not really. You know, what's an interesting form of storage that has been discussed, and I've researched a little bit, is the using nucleic nucleotides, nucleic acids. So basically, storing information on DNA-like molecules. DNA is quite resilient. It can survive millennia in the right conditions. And you could store a lot of information in a very small little bit of space. Um, You know, someone I actually interviewed in a different podcast called Health Unchained, and I did not mean to plug this here, but Uh, I interviewed... Listen to our sister podcast, Health Unchained. (laughs) Yes. What he did, him and his lab, is they actually stored an entire book inside uh, sequenced DNA, basically. So they were able to make, I don't know, a few million copies of the book inside a little vial. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting to learn about. That's actually, that is, that is inter- an interesting um, usage for... DNA. I wonder how much compression you can really get on uh, on DNA compared to say just storing it in bits. How right? does it compare? Did, did yeah, you how talk does it about that inside? We didn't talk too much about that. We were focusing more on blockchain uh, and how his company Nebula Genomics is going. But um, I can 
quickly look it up because I'm actually curious. So compression rate, right, versus... This is fascinating. Yeah, I'm just picturing someone, I'm just picturing a lawyer in a law case bringing out a vat of DNA <laughs> <laughs> to like, here are the records from the crime. Just pulls out a vat, plugs well, it into a I mean, a couldn't that be destroyed even more easily? Because you think, okay, it takes like a fire to yeah. burn a document. But if DNA is, is what do you call it? Uh, it gets too warm. Oh, or a few things yeah. can survive a fire. A ton of clay tablets. I'm pretty sure even electronics will have a. Well, yeah, I get that, but I'm just wondering, you know, how vulnerable DNA is, is, or nucleotides are. It may be less vulnerable, for example, to uh, electronic attacks. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's the other thing. I mean, uh, you can think about. Sure, it can get destroyed if the device, whatever it is, even DNA can be um, denatured. Yeah, broken down and denatured. Right. So the idea behind it is it won't be stored in one central location and you'll have this collective memory distributed amongst many different nodes, I guess you can call them. So this ability to have a distributed network of information and have all that collective memory distributed amongst many different places in the world can, one, make it less vulnerable to being destroyed because it's in multiple places so it's not on one piece of paper or one hard drive or even five hard drives. It's on thousands and maybe even potentially in the future millions of hard drives, for example. Uh, This will enhance the ability for us to retain that collective memory in our society over time. So that's a little bit about blockchain. Didn't want to get into it too much, but let's jump back into memory and how we're going to be able to, how humans will be perceiving memory in the future with the advent of all this enhancement and with technology um can you give me an example guys of how even in the past five years your use of technology has changed the way you remember well even with my use of instagram i think you know i'm taking a pic i'm kind of posting a pic every day of my life and so it's kind of serves as a visual journal i didn't have instagram two decades ago when I had 35 millimeter film even and I was, you know, you'd only take pictures at very special events because it costs money to do so. I, I think the, even the clearest example is just birthdays or phone numbers. How many people remember like your friend's birthday? Phone numbers. Their phone numbers. Yes. Uh, I mean, all that's done for us by an artificial device. So either Facebook tells you people's birthdays and we'll give you a little bloop whenever it's a birthday and you'll go on and say happy birthday and you leave a post on their wall and like walk away and forget that they exist. Or you'll be looking for your phone and be like, Oh, what's my dad's phone number? Oh, I don't have to remember because it's in my phone and it's done for me. And I never have to think about it again. Well, that's the thing right there. You just said, I don't have to remember. So that's what's happening in the past. In order to meet up with somebody or know, you know, find them you needed to know their address know where they lived you needed to know their phone number in the case you needed to call them otherwise you can't do it but now we don't need to know all these things so we rely on technology and to the point where if we took the technology away we almost couldn't do it anymore so that's what's happening pretty quickly very quickly like how many phone numbers can you guys retain now probably much less than a person our age could 20 years ago I don't think there's anything that makes us inherently incapable of remembering things. It's just we have no need for it. So remember other things instead. So we have so much access to information 
we don't have a prerogative to actually retain it if we don't need to. So right, but just look it up again. I understand that, but I think the action or the activity of actually doing it reinforces the ability for us to remember in the future. So we prime our minds or we prime our memories to to remember a phone number. And then the better we get at that, the more we can collect. As we stop doing that, we become less capable of doing so in the future, right? I, I mean, I'm sure we could relearn right? really it. I think we can. I mean, it's kind of like an true, evolutionary question. You know, if, if the necessity is not there, do we evolve differently? One of the interesting things I, I uh, found while doing some research was a, a fun fact about memory, or a fun effect about memory called the Zigernick effect. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. And basically, it just means that things that you've completed, you remember less than things you couldn't finish. So if something interrupts you from finishing a thing, you remember that more than a thing that you did actually manage to do all the way to the end. Wow, why is that? Does it explain? Um, I guess because there's an unfinished business that you need to take care of, so your brain... Yeah, like it bothers you. So your brain kind of keeps going yeah. at it. Yeah, it, It's a completed it's, task. You don't mm-hmm. need to worry about it anymore. I don't know if it's got a great explanation yet, and it's you know there's some dispute about whether it's 100% real or not, but that's... Uh, one of the things they found in some very early research, I think from like the 1920s. Hmm. Going back to the future of memory, I was thinking about, uh, you You mentioned something in our chat earlier as well that I, I was really interested in. And my segue into this, I guess, is that I've been thinking about deja vu as memory. A lot of people experience this. It, a lot of people have an experience of something happening and then feeling like they had already been thinking about that thing happening, that they've almost experienced it mentally before it happened, and they explain this as deja vu. Is this memory, and what would that look like with technological interventions or other future innovations? I mean, there's lots of ways to look at it. If you think about it, let's imagine this. You are born every possible scenario that can play out in your lifetime has been played out the second you are born let's just say right you have every scenario to take when you have a deja vu moment all you're doing is basically tapping into another universe and remembering something that happened in a different universe it's the same process when you think about the future when you think about the future you're not like envisioning a possibility you're actually tuning your antennas so that they um, align with a certain frequency of a universe where you're pulling information that's already happened in a different parallel universe. I mean, that's like the idea, the theory. I don't know if it's 100% true, but it makes sense because my mind, in my mind, every iteration of this universe has happened already. And every iteration of every other universe has happened already. All we do in life is remember some of them, a few of them. The ones that we remember is the ones that we willed ourselves to go through and experience because we willed ourselves to do it. And the reason why we choose the different paths that we take and the reason why we will ourselves for certain things is basically um, primarily because of our, um, our cultural preferences as well as uh, our environment that we feel like we should you know, uh, um, be part of and connect with and that's what makes us feel connected to the universe doing things that other people have done that's really why we do and we mimic and we 
feel closer to a community because we do what other people have done. And that's what makes us feel the way we feel. And people that are disconnected causes a whole host of problems, not just like, you know, we talked about loneliness is a problem. We talked about, you know, certain diseases that happen if you're sed- you're living a sedentary lifestyle. Most of humans were not sedentary. So if you're doing something that most of humans haven't done in the past, you you deviate from that. And that deviation causes problems. This is fascinating because there's a study, uh, there are several studies that have been done about family history and what you know about your family, which I know is not necessarily the parallel universe connection, but it's this idea that if you know what your predecessors and your ancestors, I mean your ancestors, what your ancestors have done, that and you learn more about them, you actually have more a sense of a purpose and more of uh, self-esteem, and they've studied youth. So you know, middle school to high school ages that they are less likely to get into drugs, to get into trouble, to form uh, bad habits just by knowing their family history. So it's this idea that I want to I want to know what I'm like based on what's been done in the past. This It's almost like their memory has been extended and by gaining a longer memory, I don't know if longer is the right word, but a greater memory that spans more generations back, they somehow feel greater as a person themselves. So I think your idea of remembering something that has played out and then choosing that path is really fascinating. Almost like you're lengthening the other direction. Like you feel yourself is augmenting somehow. Or it could be any number of theories that don't require a parallel universe. (laughs) uh, Some which are... Uh, have been studied and include, for example, the idea that uh, one of the one of the issues of memory that I brought up before, which is misremembering things you've already remembered or already learned about. So not remembering that you've already learned something or not remembering that you've already experienced something, something called uh, cryptoamnesia. And that's the thing that makes you an inadvertent plagiarist. That is to say, oh, this this tune you know what? I'm coming up with this tune right now. This is a good tune. I'm going to write this down and make a song out of it. And then you realize, oh, wait, someone else already did this. The same way you can forget you've already experienced something. And ex- when you experience something that's similar to it, you get this like weird, eerie sense because it's kind of displaced. Uh, or there's there's a whole lot of theories about around deja vu and uh, the different forms of deja vu. But it's... I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's due to some parallel universe or future memory. Yeah, and that's fair. Um, to be honest, like none of us really know the truth out there. I think that, you know, if you if anyone was to argue that you know we have an absolute truth, I mean, I think they're they're just being a little pretentious. We don't really know our universe as well as we want to. We have measures and tools currently that helps us create things in our universe very very awesome things like buildings and computers and airplanes and you know that took a lot of effort and a lot of millennia of you know constant iteration and and work but we still don't know what the next 10 or 20 or 100 years you know where that's going to take us and even thousand years i'm certain that in the next 100 years we will not think of memory the same way we do now and the same way that 100 years ago our idea of memory was completely different than it is now so it's it's a learning process so i don't know i don't think any of us know 
And with mm-hmm. that, I think we're going to cut to commercial and we'll spend the last bit of the episode talking more about memory. Throughout human history, conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and dementia have ravished our previous generation's memories. We've all seen the sorrow and pain our older loved ones have endured for centuries. With Memoria, the world's first universally accepted brain-computer interface to enable storage of human memories, including visual, sound, smell, and all, you can now archive all your memories into your smartphone with Memoria's Nostalgia app, available on the App Store and in the Google Play Store. The best part is the device and software are completely free. Just agree to share your content with Memoria's AI system. Your precious memories are very, very precious. Let us manage them so you don't have to. Stay tuned for the Dreamcatcher Beta Edition in 2019. Also, none of this is real right now. So we've talked a little bit at the past and the future, and then, you know, what's going on right now in memory? What's what's the big t- thing that's going on now? How's that? Yeah? I think Luis addressed a lot of that with just how does memory function. I really liked the uh, the treatment so of what, the seven sins of memory, you know, how, how memory's faulty. There, depending on the researcher that you are reading or talking to, there are different types of memory or the way, different ways memory is understood. Uh, some say, for example, that there's difference between long-term and short-term memory. Others say it's really explicit versus implicit. Uh, there's also, you know, an explicit is this conscious memory, the working memory, and then implicit is this unconscious memory. Like when you do things through rote, like when you drive to work without even thinking about it, and you end up at work and you think, how did I end up here? <laughs> Especially when you're actually driving somewhere else and you still end up at work. <laughs> so... Memory can do some really interesting things, especially implicit memory. Uh, and you know, there's also these differences between, for example, semantic and episodic. So semantic memory, where the information is coded with, with meaning, and episodic, where the information is encoded along with its kind of spatial and temporal place, its context. And what I have thought is interesting is just case studies of people who have extraordinary memories. And, you know, one of these examples, Louise kind of brought up the, the idea of people plagiarizing and not remembering that they had actually even read that thing. I think Helen Keller is a great example of that. Earlier in her life, she had been read this, this short story, and then later when she became a writer and had, you know, decided she wanted to write her own short story, she basically wrote the exact same story not even realizing or, or remembering that she was remembering, <laughs> in essence. And so she was called out as a plagiarist when she just honestly had not known that in her memory this story that had been read to her resided. And it might have, a lot of it might have been due to the fact that you know, her brain, not her brain had changed, but the, the way she thought changed a lot through the time of learning how to understand and speak and um, just the way things changed when she learned that what she was signing, for example, were actual words and not just commands to get more of something. 
So the way she thought about the world had changed a lot, and therefore her memory had changed, or the encoding had changed somehow. She was 12 years old at the time of that of the incident. So it's incredible that that became an actual like event that actually was uh, that someone actually reported this, and it became a small little drama for her. Yeah. Early in life. And she thought about it the rest of her life. She felt terrible, which is shows her character because she wasn't even guilty in the sense it, it was true that she had uh, taken that information that it was that it was a real book that had been read to her and she had copied it, but not on purpose. It was almost a trick her own memory played on her. She was innocent in that sense, and so it. it but it still really bothered her for the rest of her life and she wrote about it later how how even she would reread to herself letters she had written to her mother to make sure she wasn't using sentences she had just heard before in a book uh and so it really plagued her uh but another person i think of that had just an incredible memory was the character that dustin hoffman played in the movie rain man his name was kim peak and i've actually met him i at a charity event he spoke he and I guess his brother came and I was this was I mean my memory of this is (laughs) terrible uh, because it was a while ago for me but he is said that he could memorize 9,000 books at 8 to 12 seconds per page and he could just recall any any fact uh, and I remember when I had met him that, that somebody had asked him, like, who won the World Series in a certain year and who played in the last inning or something, you know, something really detailed, and he could recall it. And it was just it blew my mind that people have this incredible memory. So then I started reading, okay, what are some other, like, incredible memory traits people have? And the first thing that came to mind was, well, well I better read up on photographic memory because I feel like... That's a pretty incredible feat for people who can like see something and remember it exactly how it looked. And it turns out, at least from what I can tell from my reading, that true 100% photographic memory does not exist. That they've done studies and no one is mm-hmm. 100% like true fidelity of photographic memory. So that means that like I at high, uh, not a high percentage, but higher percentage than you expect of children have adidic memory, which is this, like, they can remember the very vivid, exact details of a photograph for a few minutes. So they can recall it, like, several minutes later. And this is, like, up to 15% of children, which I think is a high percentage. I mean, it, uh, from what I expected, I guess. And, uh, but if anyone claims photographic memory, uh, it's not... It's not been proven that that's actually possible. So maybe not a hundred percent, but I've seen cases where someone would, you know, look at a photograph of an entire city for like ten mm-hmm. seconds and then draw it all yeah. for the next couple hours. And, and that's adidic memory. That's like the uh, similar to photographic memory where. If it's recent enough and you've looked at the scene, you can paint it, but there's still going to be variations. They're still going to take artistic liberties because they just don't have photographic memory. They just come very close. I'm, right. I'm curious how much, given the fact that their memory, that someone with relative, what we call photographic memory, but as you're describing, isn't perfect, how when they recall information, 
how much of an impact that recall has on the new the information next time they recall it. Because mm-hmm. if all you're missing is small details, if you're only off by small details, I wonder how much those details kind of compound and change over time. Well, isn't that so like that, when you retell a story to people? <laughs> At least well, yeah. I have friends in my life where this, if, I, if I'm present for the retelling of the story, the story is changing through time, which yeah, I think is... Yeah, it definitely is. is. Uh, and, but, but if that yeah. happens to us, happens I wonder everybody. what happens to people who have extremely good memory. Right. Do they make up more stuff when they, like, oh, those details, do they fill them in a mm. lot more or a yeah. lot less? That's the thing I'm curious about. I mean, this has to do with also what is the purpose of memory. Some people um, say, you know, the purpose of of why do we even have a memory is to influence future action. Uh, Now, there's one big gap we kind of have here in memory, right? Which is our memory is actually limited to a certain span of our lifetime. When we are, like, you don't remember what you did as a baby. And if you have dementia in old age, you have no, you're not going to remember that. So you don't even remember what happened yesterday sometime. You know what I mean? So there's kind of this couching of the absence of memory encoding, or maybe it's just lack of retrieval, but it's in those those uh, like beginning and end pieces of our lives. So why is it that we only have a fully functioning memory for most adults anyway? Or I won't even say adults because children are included, but th- that it starts at some age and, and a- almost ends at some age as a, a healthy memory cushion, right? Well, how useful is it for your survival, right? I think over time as we've evolved we've only needed to remember what we've needed to remember in order to survive and continue surviving our species so maybe Mm. sure there are many useful benefits of remembering things you know i remember fire is hot so i don't burn into flames and you know over time you remember people's faces so you know who to trust that's why we're really good at remembering faces because we can know who to trust but that's I wonder how that's going to change in the future, too. Um, Actually, that means that babies do have memory then because a baby knows when he or she is with their mother or not. Children definitely have memory. Uh, They all have memory. definitely have memory. Uh, But it's the phenomenon known as childhood amnesia is one that, you know, there's there's theories about why people get it. I don't know if there's a well-known, exact, more well-established answer for that. I don't know, so I'm not going to comment on that. But... I would say that to be wary of saying that we lose our memory when we get older. Yes, there are yeah. definitely failings of memory, but a lot of the time that's more it. in the form of it's an actual condition. It's part of disease like, or something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's more a biological, a biological mm. um, deterioration right, of, yeah. of, your, of yeah. your brain, of the synapses inside of your brain and all the you know, blood vessels that are yes, you but know, again, related. Normal aging does not include drastic memory loss, at least not from it's what I've It's more related to disease. Studied. It's more it, it's abnormality more, of health. Yes. Like I said uh, earlier, one of the sins of memory is transience. That's just normal losing of memory over time because that happens. But unless you have some sort of uh, injury or illness, you're not supposed to have or you're not l- likely to have drastic memory loss just simply with age. That's more of a sign of you have a condition and you probably should see someone about mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but this right. this childhood, I mean, what's interesting is our own history has to be a collective history because we cannot, because of our failings, so you Steph, could say, of memory. Steph, you say that, yeah. but also think about to your, you know, child age from like five to like 10 yeah. or 15 or something. How much of those times do you remember? I'm sure you remember like some instances of class but or not a lot. your friends and your but birthdays. But that's why I'm saying our history but has to be is, collective because somebody else has to help us write it. Like your mother sure. was there and she probably has a much more vivid memory than you right. do of that, of your own life at that time period. And photos and videos and sound recordings and yeah. all these Artifacts help to trigger and um, relocate that memory inside of your mind. So That's all these things that were created. recall. So there's three types recall. of recall. So we've talked a lot about the storage of memory. Uh, and we've, you know, like long-term, short-term storage. But we haven't talked about the actual retrieval of memory. And there's free recall, cued recall, and serial recall. And what you're talking about is cued recall, where there's some associative element that is brought forth, and that is what pulls, is, acts as the cue that pulls or retrieves that memory out. So I may not remember actively that I ate a snow cone that was really terrible because it tasted like spaghetti and meatballs until I see you know, a spaghetti and meatball shop while I'm walking with my friends and we're talking about childhood and I say, oh my gosh, spaghetti and me- I had a snow cone that tasted like spaghetti and me, right? So you have this cue that pulls the memory that you would have probably not retrieved otherwise. And, you know, there's three types, not three types, there's three parts of the process of memory. One is the encoding. That's the first stage, which we haven't even talked about. Then the storage, which most people talk about when they talk about memory. And then the retrieval, which I just talked about. So, so also when we consider encoding, there are actually multiple ways to encode memory because it, like you said, memory comes at us at, as information, raw data, artifacts, experiences, sensory feelings. experiences, feeling right. inside, you know, and well, think about this. that has to be Go encoded ahead. in a way, but it, like, into a, into the medium in which our brain works, which if it's biological, then it needs to be encoded biologically in some way. And so that's why also uh, a lot of people, when they get, there's something called myofacial massage, where when we have experiences, the, the actual memory, the emotional memory of that experience is encoded in your muscles. And so if somebody massages you in the right way, they can actually release the emotion of that memory that was encoded in that muscle, and you can feel that emotion again. And this causes sometimes people will completely start crying at a very, not because it hurts, <laughs> but because somebody has released this memory. This is an actual, like, whole field. Uh, that's amazing. A whole think, field uh, of, uh, of massage therapy studies this, which I think is fascinating because it's showing that, you know, we are biologically encoding memories, and it's not necessarily just in a certain part of the brain, for example. Right, and also, if you think about why some people forget certain parts of life you talk about as a baby. When you're a baby, you might not have a lot of reasoning behind why things are happening. You, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of like stress you might feel, and also happiness. But there, all these stresses and happiness are not really related to uh, very specific things. It's it's are, are they are related to only specific things. They're not a there's no there's no groove in your mind that's like 
re reinforcing the memory. It's just like very instantaneous kind of feelings and memories. So there's not a lot of information to latch onto. So it's very surface level information. That's why you're not remembering. Also, um, if I think about if you think about like traumatic experiences like PTSD, if someone you know goes to war and witnesses a lot of pain or actually feels a lot of pain, what I've heard is if you are experienced, if you go through a traumatic, painful experience, you actually tend to forget that pretty quickly just because your brain, your body doesn't... You're suppressing um, the memory yeah, to you're save yourself future it. pain, right? In some instances. In other instances, I'm sure that having the painful experience will make you remember it more. Um, at the, I'm not really sure. I think I read something about... People, it can I go know, both ways. Women and, giving and birth. And there can be the cues as well. Yeah, people say that, you know, you... You forget the pain once you're holding your baby. It's just, you know, it's because the happiness takes over. And there's lots of poetic ways people say it. But I don't know what the, you know, the biology of memory is behind those And it's quite different for each person, too. I don't think we can generalize specifically. Each person handles information differently based on Mm -hmm. their genetics, their environment, their culture, their own personal preferences and experiences. I don't know the answer to all these questions, and I don't know um, how much of this stuff has a lot of research behind it versus what's more speculation, especially uh, some of our discussion. But I want to ask you guys one thing. How do you want to be remembered? Hmm. It's a good question. Have you ever got, have you guys ever watched Coco? Movie yes. Coco? Yeah, animated basically film? the best movie ever. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> sweetest movie in the world. And... Abuelita. I, I think just I think just being remembered as just being remembered by you know your family or loved ones or even anyone in the world if you're like um, someone who's contributed to society in a very positive way would be great I mean it would be amazing to be remembered forever I think so, Ray, do you want to have a giant statue of yourself, uh, have your face engraved in the moon? <laughs> What's kind of the method you'd like? Maybe like to a lead? biography. With the, the, yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I would like to be a person that people can maybe read about or at least inquire about. And those people become inspired to do what they want to do. I just want to be able to say I've inspired people to do what they want to do. So above a Wikipedia page, but maybe below... Um, a History Channel documentary. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a good. One. I would like a Wikipedia page. That would be that would be. Well, nice. anybody uh, can have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, right. Actually, no, they will knock you. They will take down. Yeah, your you Wikipedia gotta be page. like oh? a, someone that's All right. yeah. Yeah. You need to like. But a you don't have to be that notable. Like Louis if you have like, tried. a <laughs> decent amount of Instagram followers, yeah. I have not, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Although it would be interesting to see if a. Uh, fairly small podcast. Well, make it actually, there. yeah, wh- we can just oh. claim podcast fame here. <laughs> I did not even That's consider not a, this. Not a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, some people don't want to be remembered. Bomb, bomb, do not bomb Wikipedia with our podcast. So listeners, this is not us telling you to go on wikipedia.org and create an entry for PFL podcast. As much as lovely as that would be, we want to make sure that we can grow naturally and get there. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a way to be remembered. Steph, how about yourself? When somebody is asked how they want to be remembered, I think it depends on 
what their life's mission and purpose is. And many people, including myself, are figuring that out or or progressing with that. Uh, that our mission, we kind of find out more of what we can contribute to the world as we live. I think how I wanted to be remembered when I was a teenager is different from how I might want to be remembered now. And I know I will want to be remembered differently. My future self will want that. And so if I say now on a podcast, you know, this is how I want to be remembered, it, I, I, my future self might say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. You know, <laughs> that's, what I, that's what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And it shows how we've developed a sense of what memory means to us and how it reflects our values. Because, you know, somebody who wants to be remembered for their great scientific innovation is, is it has a different value on their life than somebody who wants to be remembered as a great father or mother. And that father, the person who wants to be remembered as a great father or mother might be a better scientist than the person who wants to be remembered as a scientist and vice versa. It's not necessarily what they were greatest at or what their achievement was, but how they perceive their values to be. And it shows that in a culture as well, how we remember people shows what we value. If we are remembering and writing, you know, doing history channel <laughs> biographies <laughs> and documentaries on, on people of, of certain achievements, we are basically communicating to the world, we value these things more because we've chosen to remember them. And it's interesting how we kind of live in a world where what you want to be remembered for and what you are remembered for are increasingly harder to predict. So, or rather, increasingly harder to control because so much more of our information is out there. The things you do that even if they shake the world, it could be something minor about your life that is the thing that you're remembered for. Uh, The same way that the way you die can sometimes be the way that you're remembered when all your achievement in life are forgotten. Uh, Norm MacDonald has a a bit about this where he talks about being found after you having your, the, the thing that happens immediately after you die is that you're found. That's the ne- the first thing that's going to happen and who finds you and how they find you is going to be more memorable. That's happened to you in your life. So it's interesting to think about these small moments and how they can define, especially in the face of a world where some people have Facebook pages from birth. So Luis, what about you? How do you like, how would you like to be remembered? I'm kind of with Steph on this one. I think that it's one of those things that because I'm younger right now, I might want to be remembered more for my deeds. But as I get older, I might want to be remembered more by my family and for being a good parent, husband, uh, community fellow. So that's another one that I may not be able to answer right now because I I don't know exactly. Although I am tempted to say that I would like to be remembered by, by family and friends positively and as a good person. That's really all that matters ultimately. So I did like your answers. Uh, I think I kind of agree with you. We don't really know what, how we want to be remembered until the end of it, really. But um, with that, I think we've had a good discussion and we're ready to wrap up. So I hope you all enjoyed this interesting kind of conversation. I hope you've all enjoyed this interesting conversation about memory and all different facets of it. And we'd love to have you subscribe, like our episodes, Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. We are on multiple different podcast platforms. So please do not hesitate to listen to our episodes. Contact us. 
give us some suggestions about topics, even though we have like 300 topics right now in the queue. But, you know, <laughs> if a guest comes out with some, you know, we'd love to accommodate our guests. So we, we love our piffles. So, so thank you so much for listening, everybody. Have a great day and a great week and a great memorable life. As always, stay crazy. All his notes are gone. His memory uh, is lost. <laughs> can't remember anything. Why can we start a PFL band? Uh, sure. We haven't we talked Why about not? it before? Have we? I, I feel like we have. Oh my gosh, this is all going the, the episode. Piano, piano, the flute, and let's see. What's a good instrument that starts with an L? Oh, the liar. What's a liar? It's a stringed instrument. Yeah, it's a stringed instrument from like the Greek days. <laughs> this represents the truth. The, I believe I said tooth, so I'm just gonna throw that out there for <laughs> editing. Don't don't misrepresent my tooth. <laughs> <laughs>